recording in a studio and the, the sound engineer who I work with, he's brilliant. And I think I've done, you know, hit it first time. So yeah, just, just one more for luck. And then says that quite a few more times. <laughs> <laughs> you must need a lot of luck, mate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've got the bit I needed. All right, let's carry on. <laughs> I was really struck by your last quarterly platform update, which you described. You, the, the phrase that jumped out to me was the most bruising quarter we've seen for advised platforms. So I thought that does not sound good. So we should probably do an intro, Rich, because you haven't been on the podcast before, even though you've worked for Lancat for what, a couple of years now? Just uh, sort of like 18, 19, 20 months, something like that. So first of all, what do you do for Lancat? And then uh, more importantly, why did you say this has been the most bruising course you've ever seen for advice platforms? <laughs> sure. So yeah, my name's Rich Bayer. I've been at Lancat for as long as I said a moment ago. I'm the senior analyst at Belanca in the insight team. And sort of my sort of main responsibilities here are, are, are writing the, or writing a lot, but um, writing the platform market scorecard, which is our quarterly analysis of how platforms have been doing, and you know also the state of the advisor nation report, state of the platform nation report, as well as some of the other things that we've done more recently like uh, the service paper we did with Aberdeen. But yeah, I suppose I can mainly be boiled down to looking at numbers and writing about them. Right, so you know what's going on. You're, you're the guy who actually knows what's going on. You're collating all the data. So what made you say that? What's, what, so um, Because that, that, was, that was slightly alarming to my eyes, that statement. Well, yeah, we're not known for being um, <laughs> safe, I guess. But because um, I've been working in and with platforms and advisors for what 15 years or so now and for the vast majority of of that time the platform game has been relatively easy as long as you're good at pensions have some good functionality back up a good service and a good price you're probably going to be doing okay but things have markedly changed in the uk over the past couple of years and the reason I went for the most bruising quarter that we've seen for advised platforms is typically it's been a market that has been going up and to the right of the chart, as in asset growth has been pretty steady year on year. Flows have been steady from pensions particularly, but we're seeing a drop off in sales, volatile markets. Asset growth this quarter was pretty, pretty nominal for most platforms. But net sales is obviously the other marker we have for, for asset growth. And they were the lowest we've seen on record. So it was 2.8 billion across 21 platforms that we, that we get data for. And for a bit of context, a couple of years ago, two platforms on their own had 2.8 billion in net sales. Okay, and that point about net sales is, mm. is really important, isn't it? Because everyone's filling a leaky bucket, right? So is it, is it the numerator or the denominator that's the problem here? Is it they're not shoveling enough in at the top or is there too much coming out the bottom? Well, yeah, I think the most recent obvious one to compare this to is the uh, kind of activity and numbers we saw around the pandemic. That's kind of, obviously, that's a, that was a big hit where everything changed. And gross sales are actually better than they were for the first half of this year. They're better than they were in the first half of the pandemic, but net sales are worse. 
So the difference between money coming on and money leaving and what's left over in net sales, that gap is significantly bigger than it ever has. Well, it's the largest gap we've ever seen in a quarter. So yeah, for a bit of extra context then, typically outflows across all of the platforms that we that we look at kind of add up to somewhere around nine or 10 billion each quarter. It's been pretty stable for certainly the last few years or so, and even during the pandemic. But for the first half of this year, we've seen a significant jump in there going up to around 12, maybe even closer to 13 this quarter. So there's been an increase in, in that outflows. Whereas the, you know, gross sales, there's still been money coming onto platforms, but the amount that has been taken out and withdrawn from investments has grown a fair bit. And can you track to any extent whether people are eating each other's lunch or, you know, where, is, there, is there new money coming into the system or is everyone just going around, you know, it's just Polly put the kettle on or everything. Yeah. You're just <laughs> kind of stealing, stealing each other's pots. Yeah, uh, I think that's probably probably a bit of both. It's, it's kind of hard to, to, to kind of get a grip on how much new, new money is coming in. We're at the kind of mercy of platforms whether they would like to disclose that to us. Some do and some, and, and some are, may not be able to share for various reasons. But I think the amount of new money that's com- coming in, we've seen like some specific market conditions in the past that have been a real boom and you can tell that there is new money going in. I'm mostly thinking of the sort of 2018 DB transfers. Um, DB transfer business, yeah, exactly. Huge amount of money coming in. That had its own consequences as well for, for outflows because obviously that's all at retirement business. And the reason why it's moving is to take advantage of the, the new flexibilities afforded by pension freedoms. So going into drawdown and also things like phase drawdown, all that extra flexibility to go with the often eye-watering multiples that were being offered flooded the, the platform market with a whole host of, of retirement business. But it was at retirement business, so you know those people are starting to draw their income now, and that did increase the kind of new minimum for, for each quarter, how much was going to be going in outflows. But there's a significant jump from there that we've seen this year. And a couple of obvious culprits here, cost of living crisis, maybe some money going out in mortgage payments, maybe yeah. resurgence of annuities. What are, your, what are your thoughts around those? It's a mix. It's a mix of all. So certainly the cost of living crisis is, and you know, rising inflation, or even though it's, it's come down a notch recently, that obviously just means things are getting more expensive more slowly. But I think that's affecting more and more people now. And as I said, at the top, platform businesses is essentially still the vast majority of flows go into pensions. They stick around for a long time. And typically, if we're looking at what the split is between pension pensions in accumulation, so in the saving phase mm-hmm. versus in drawdown or decumulation or your other favorite word for drawing down your pension, the majority of assets do still are still in the accumulation phase. So it stands to reason as well then with the interest rate rises that a lot of these people are going to have mortgages. And we certainly heard that from some platforms that I spoke to. There's been an increase on both sides. So on the cost of living side, there's been an increase in kind of little smaller ad hoc withdrawals from clients right. to subsidize more immediate costs. But also we have heard of you know larger withdrawals with perhaps people's mortgages coming to their end of their end of their, their term and, and 
a big hike in their monthly repayments, perhaps in some instances, it's it's a good idea to to pay down some or all of that mortgage. Um, and yeah, the, the last thing you mentioned there was around annuities. And yeah, frankly, annuities haven't been, really been competitive with drawdown for, for some time because of that low interest rate, low yield environment that we've been in for so long. Mm. And in the last couple of years, obviously that's quite uh, changed quite a lot as well. Seeing some of the best rates that we've seen for some years offered by annuity providers. And I certainly think that's not going to be suitable for all clients, but I'm reminded of a conversation that I had probably about a year ago now with an advisor who in all of the assets, whereas asset values were all over the place and generally falling. They fell for three quarters in a, in a row across platforms for the first three quarters of last year. So each time, each each month, the client is saying, well, my, my pension's gone down again, my pension's gone down again. So at the moment, we're fine managing that conversation and we still think the plan is right. But if that crept into sort of springtime of this year, as it obviously has, those conversations might change and they might want to take at least some remedial action. So even just, you know, partial term annuity, just for the next five years to give a little bit of predictability to to income while while leaving the the majority in in drawdown and all the tax benefits that come with that. It's certainly understandable to see that that behaviour coming out. And, and, And that's kind of backed up by numbers we've seen from the ABI about the big increase in annuity sales in the first half of this year and also people like Canva Life and, and Just who have also posted some strong numbers as well. So this all sounds a bit gloomy if you're running a platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, perhaps less so if you're an advisor because advisors always make money, whatever the market conditions, it's always a certain <laughs> to customers. Do you get any sense? I mean, I guess this is this is beyond yours and my pay grade and maybe perhaps beyond our job description, but do you feel like this, are we reaching any kind of an inflection point in terms of inflation and interest rates? Is there any grounds for optimism for platform providers going looking ahead to 2024? Are things going to get better? Well, we haven't quite landed our jobs at the Bank of England yet, but um, I certainly think that the signs are there, right? But I think if we looked at historical trends, this takes a while to watch through. So I think without being a messenger of doom and gloom, I think it's probably going to be pretty similar again next year. Just not a great deal has changed. There's signs of it, but there's there's nothing properly changed. And what we tend to find is, you know, sales follow the previous kind of asset trends. So if asset values are falling, the following quarters, it's going to be harder for, there's a slowdown in new money coming up. Okay, so the beatings will continue until morale improves. Um, <laughs> so in terms of assets under management, I mean, there's been a bit of shuffling of the pack. So who are the big dogs these days? Who, which, which are the dominant platforms in the market now? Yeah, um, the timing is rather pertinent on that, actually, because this quarter, although the, the, the top five have still remained largely the same, but at the very, very top, the new largest advice platform is Quilter, replacing Aberdeen in Q2 as the largest advice platform out there. How much have they got under management? How much are we talking about there? We're talking around 70, uh, just shy of 70 billion. So not not small change, I guess. And, and obviously Aberdeen are, are still very close behind on that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then 
outside of that, we've got Transact, Fidelity Advisor Solution, and AJ Bell, and Aviva, probably the, the, the largest players in terms, at least in terms of assets under management. Okay. And I mean, you've mentioned Quilter have sort of overtaken Aberdeen there. So I guess you put them in this camp. But did you know? Winners and losers in terms of net new business. Are there any kind of sort of standout trends there in, in which which platforms are doing well and which 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 are which are not so much? I think this is kind of where you get to see the sort of nuances of the different models there or, or, or the distribution models. So for for Quilter, I mean, all of this information is, is public, so you can go and check it for yourself. But they've obviously been fairly aggressive at least a few years ago in in growing their advice arm uh, the was intrinsic now quilter financial planning restricted arm so quilter obviously features on that restricted panel uh, along with a few other platforms and that greater insight of owning your distribution being closer to the marketing closer to the decisions made understanding or getting more information exactly essentially brings a level of predictability to it and certainly you could see how the numbers from there they're still obviously open to business for ifas as well but that the the part that's that's driving the growth in net sales the quilter financial planning part has, has really helped them close that gap on on assets under management when when sales from ifas have been a bit trickier to to find out in platform land and Quite often at the top of our net sales tables is true potential. And that's obviously the kind of most vertically integrated platform out there. You know, we're certainly not, not shied away from that. And it's, it brings, again, that level of predictability to, to flows. And they're quite often at the top or, or very near the top of the net sales charts for, for buy sales. And that's you know, obviously part of their, their model of being acquisitory and, you know, Bringing those assets onto onto the true potential platform, it's a bit different to the to the quilter one where you know, quilters on on part of the panel. But I think the what I use as the kind of bellwether for the health, I guess, of of IFA flows onto onto platforms is Transact is usually where I start because they're pretty big. I've uh, been going a long time and generally have a really favourable opinion from from advisors and that that only IFA don't have any of their own their own advisors so that's a, that's a good measure of the health of the, the wider market or at least a good starting point and if I mean, even transact i think i'm right in saying that they at the lowest net sales this quarter but and i think that's that's well that is true for a lot of platforms as i said earlier on 2.8 billion when across 21 platforms this quarter when and yeah a couple of platforms said that on their own a couple of years ago and you talked a bit about the, the squeeze middle, you know, the large versus medium sized versus small platforms and how that kind of plays out in the market dynamics there. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like, often we can get sucked into the trap of AUA size being determinant of, of success, I guess. But when, when you sort of dig under the surface, it, it kind of feels a bit reductive just to just to measure it in pure AUA sense or AUM sense. But yeah, we've we've got some of the, what, what we observe in volatile markets is a kind of flood back to safety, I guess. So scale and financial security and those sorts of things 
tend to become more important in volatile times for, for, for obvious and understandable reasons. But also on the, there's that element of free, uh, future-proofing your business. So advisors are under more scrutiny than ever to, to validate the platforms that they use mm-hmm. and also to future-proof it because we've got, we've got some disruptors in the, in the platform market. I'm thinking ones like Fundment and P1 and, and Morningstar was, was premium. And those guys, are, they're growing quickly. Obviously, that's much easier when you don't have a big, big legacy book like some of the big life providers that we've talked about at the top end of the AUA scale. But I think the focus, I suppose, I don't know whether it's, it's sort of bordering on concern, I guess, but around this middle that you say, the ones that perhaps have been in the market for a long time but haven't realised the scale, what's the future look like for them? Then it brings into the other stuff like what's the ownership model? Is it on the stock exchange? Is it private equity? Those sorts of things give little clues around, around the future. And for years and years and years, us commentators have been saying it's ripe for, uh, ripe for consolidation in the platform market. And we are starting to see bits of that, certainly with James Hay, Nucleus, and now Curtis Banks. When all those are woven together, it'll be one of the biggest platforms out there. And again, that's, that's through private equity ownership, which doesn't always rub advisors up, or certainly some advisors are not fans of that model. Others are indifferent and some are positive about it, but it'll play into the decision-making. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's not something I've been close to, but I can, I'm, I'm aware there's been a lot of private equity money has come into this sector in the last few years, which would suggest there's money to be made there, right? That there may be, yeah. uh, maybe associated with that, there's, there's inefficiencies in the market that can be exploited isn't that what private equity does you know they come yeah. in and make things work better and then and then bugger off again with a big bag of money <laughs> so i think it's a bit different well certainly should be thought about a bit differently in in the platform market just because you know the, the time horizon of stuff is generally quite a bit longer think of how long a pension is <laughs> is on a platform for and that's that's what's made the the market as strong as it has with been a big part of it is is that time horizon of growing money of it staying where it was of being being in the market all that sort of stuff but i think yeah you're right we did see a flood of private equity money coming in particularly sort of in and around pandemic time years either side of that but that was still a relatively low interest rate environment and i think right that's going to have a well it can have a knock-on effect onto how much further interest there is from, from PE firms. But there's still, you know, that's still the, I guess, the, the way that they'll make their decisions is still the same. There's still, there's still opportunity there to invest and, and to extract value and, you know, and all that sort of stuff still, still remains. But I feel like the rise in interest rates is probably, it may temper the, the speed of it a bit, see them sticking around for a while yeah you highlighted in your latest updates you, know, you track the tech developments across the platform sector and just thinking about all that investment money coming in are we seeing reinvestments in in the platform sector new functionality new systems new capabilities new tools is is is, is that working well at the moment there's, there's certainly been some for example if we took that that james hay nucleus one that's obviously a a big investment in acquiring that, but then also the, the plans 
to move the move the James Hay platform off its proprietary software, which is uh, you know, a bit creaky, and certainly certainly needs a refresh to to commit that money to the deal with FNZ and moving nucleus onto FNZ from Bravura as well. But outside of outside of that sort of stuff, I mean, <laughs> re-platform is a, a not small jobs, obviously. But in terms of like innovation in new tools, new technology, I think that's probably fair to say it's slowed down a bit. And I'm r- reminded of a conversation I had with someone at a platform a couple of years ago where there wasn't this kind of big regulatory burden over over the heads of, of platforms. And that was a time where we saw if you know, they could invest it more into developing without, without having less of a focus on big regulatory impacts coming, like obviously most recently consumer duty. We have seen little pockets of, of some in, good innovations and certainly some interesting ones. The fundament index customization one was, was a good one. We quite consistently hear through State of the Advisor Nation, which is a big annual survey of advisors, and we're eternally grateful for their time because it's, it's, it's not short, but we get a lot out of it and, and we share all that with small plug to please. Please do that this year. It'll be out in the field shortly. But yeah, we hear quite consistently that they wanted more innovation around the retirement space, particularly in in drawdown. And really, since pension freedoms, what you'll know better than me, 2016, that was it? 2015. 2015. But yeah, so we haven't actually seen outside of like phase drawdown and those sorts of ones and, and obviously the flexible income options. There hasn't been too much innovation there. I mean, the only one that really kind of stood out was one for Aberdeen, which is a drawdown lock, which is a curious kind of thing with platforms where I think everyone now works on a tiered charging structure, which means that obviously that you grow your assets and you pay a lower percentage charge encourage you to put more assets onto a platform. But when you start withdrawing those, then you obviously go back through the charges and it becomes more expensive. And, and Aberdeen's drawdown lock, though it has some criteria to meet, it was, you know, you can lock in that cheapest price that you had at the peak of your assets as, as you draw. But again, I don't know how how well it's known within the advisor community. I'm certainly not not looking to pump this. It's just one that stands out as stand, when I saw it at the time, I was like, that's a, that's a genuine innovation. That's a, a into the fundamental ways of, of how platforms make their money. But I don't, I don't think it's that well known. And that was a fair few years ago as well. So there's not been too much other proper innovation in that retirement space. So perhaps not specific to the retirement space, but you did highlight the Intelliflow tie up so it's i think you use the phrase game changer talk, talk to me a bit about that what, what's, what's so exciting about that yes i kind of feel like this when this was announced i thought right this is actually a potential game changer for again for some of the reasons and some of the themes that we see in state of the advisor nation so we do a big section on rating asking advisors how how they how, how they feel about their tech across all of their main systems like their back office, their CRM, as well as all the, the perhaps more satellite systems like 
drawdown companies and cash flow modeling, those sorts of those sorts of things. If we, do, we give them a kind of hypothetical scenario saying, right, there's no impacts here, just imagine that you could switch out one for another, which one would you change? And typically we found that you know, back office systems was one that people were least happy with, I guess, still generally happy, but if they could pick it again, they, that was the one that would most likely change. And the reasons for that were around, you know, stuff we've had for years around re-keying applications onto, onto different systems. And that's where I thought that big problem, that big issue that's been consistent for years would be squared off or potentially squared off with this, with the IntelliFlow world proposition. And obviously it's a, it's a competitive price as well. But we hear about quite, you know, so much inefficiencies in re-keying through advice firms. And that just seems bizarre that we're still talking about re-keying and, and integrations and stuff like that. Because we have done for years and all the other, all the rest of the world, advice firms have had increased workloads in, in things like consumer duty and, and increased regulation, disclosure, all that sort of stuff. And the way that you, that obviously saps up time in what is generally a pretty time poor profession. They don't have a great deal of free time. And these like inefficiencies should be closed off with technology. It's the most sensible way to do it. But yeah, that was why it was a potential game changer in my view. So it just got, has the potential to get rid of one of the biggest graphs we hear from advisors consistently for years. Interesting. I'm also intrigued, I guess is the word, with the, the whole kind of Lloyds Bank Widows integration, because there potentially you've got a LifeCo that's now absorbed uh, the, the Embark brand platform and you've got all the banking services of Lloyds. And that looks to me like an entity that potentially could actually do an entirely holistic financial program or functionality or solution for, for, for customers. What are your thoughts around that? Is that, is, is that a model for the future? Yeah, I think, I think what stands out about you know, what Lloyds have been doing when they purchased Embark and, and announced the plans for it, you know, the white labeling plans, the, the advanced platform, as, as you mentioned, that's obviously being rebranded and will, will migrate at some point. I think what is rare to find is a company like Lloyd's, in, certainly in this platform market, that has that full breadth of annuities, of mortgages, of banking services, of, of a platform of, you know, they're in a position now where Scottish Widows advisors have a platform to sell and the, the old Embark users have a, have a nice easy cross-sell into, into the Scottish Widows products as well. And I think what we were talking about earlier on, this on-platform, off-platform stuff, that are arguably closing that gap. We could certainly see a see a potential future state where they've got kind of everything to hand. And obviously under a Lloyd's brand that's familiar to customers, all, all that sort of stuff. Couldn't really think of one that would really have that breadth. I mean, that's not to say that it, it'll necessarily work from the go. There's, there's huge companies to try and weave together. Oh, these integrations the always work. <laughs> yeah, famously. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously a long road ahead there. But, you know, even they've got a couple of D2C platforms in, in iWeb and 
and share dealing as well that have good scale. There's a lot that you can see there that you could imagine a future state where they're much more connected. There's arguably not really any other platform in that state that has, you know, <laughs> not everyone has Lloyds as, as their own, I guess. No. Um, interesting. So what about D2C World? Is HL still dominant? I mean, II have got very good account, average account values. Vanguard's been growing fast. What does the world look like in that space? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Naturally, in terms of flows, if we compare it to the advised market, we tend to find, understandably, it's probably a bit more knee-jerky from investors. Investors' attitudes tend to be a bit more knee-jerky than the kind of slower, steadier approach than that we see from advisors. Obviously, they've been around since all before, et cetera. But yeah, there's, there's been good money coming in there since, since the pandemic, really. And there's a fair bit of, we saw well, lots of recorded record numbers in, in 2021, at least. And a lot of the new investors were, were quite a bit younger. And so the question mark was, are these going to disinvest when markets become choppy? They're going to take their money out. And I think largely we've seen that they haven't. And that's obviously very encouraging for the future. Yeah, I think it's I think it is encouraging for the for the future. And in terms of like the, the players, will any will anyone ever challenge Hargreaves? Well, we've got obviously Interactive Investor, got a sizable client book now. Mm. Uh, it's got a pretty good if if you're going to recruit AUM over or clients over AUM, it's it's quite a high on average that I think some advice platforms would be quite happy with the sort of average that they get. And I think playing into that, we've got a fixed fee model there. There's a bit more variety in how you can get charged or how you pay for, pay for the services. And we've also got someone like Vanguard. They've only been around in the, the UK platform, something about maybe five, maybe turning six. Pretty impressive growth. In it, Incre- yeah, it's incredible, really. We don't typically observe a platform growing that quickly in any way. But yeah, to go from nothing to, I think they announced it was, it's, it's over 15 billion in sort of five years from scratch. It's, it's pretty impressive. Well, they've only got um, 100 billion to go to catch up with HL. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the, the signs of that, the amount of new customers that they're adding, they've been typically yeah. adding more than, than Hargreaves have each yeah, quarter. Yeah. So, which you know from a from a smaller base is, is <laughs> results in some pretty impressive growth growth figures but yeah i think yeah outs, outside well i think those are the ones to watch would be interactive investor uh, it's obviously being part of an aberdeen mm-hmm. you can see that for as long as i've been around in platforms i think they've been trying to work out the kind of d to c conundrum certainly for advice platforms do we try and help nurture those clients of the future that might become big enough to warrant a, a financial advice in the future. Mm. There's, a logical, there's a logical link there between let's make these relationships with D2C clients early on, help them grow to, to meet that threshold to, to warrant a financial advice. Then for, especially the ones that have their own advice distribution, there's a natural link there to retaining that business or having the best chance of retaining that business. Yeah, and you can also throw in some mix the advice guidance 
boundary review and what that might do for those big players like HL and IR and Vanguard and their capacity to engage even better with their customers and serve those customers without charging them the kind of thing that advisors do. So that's a yeah. yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Good stuff. So when is the next platform market scorecard published and when we can find out whether the world has indeed gone to hell in a handcart or things have improved. <laughs> For our clients, they'll get the full reports somewhere around mid-November time. We're just working out the, the last embargo dates for platforms and yeah press release will be out in all of the all of the normal presses uh, on the same time good stuff all right thanks good to talk to you rich and you mate i hope you enjoyed this conversation if you did then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes the sound engineer was ross burns thank you for listening